I'm delighted and honored to introduce Dr. Louis N. Rivera Pagan, the Henry Winters Luce Professor of Ecumenics and Mission Emeritus at Princeton Theological Seminary. Professor Rivera Pagan received his doctorate from Yale University in 1970, and he has authored and edited multiple books, among which are A Violent Evangelism, The Political and Religious Conquest of the Americas, Essays from the Diaspora, and Essays from the Margins. There are many more, but please trust me that my pronunciation in Spanish would do a disservice um, to Professor Rivera Pagan, and definitely to the Spanish language also. Uh, in his scholarship, Dr. Rivera Pagan shows that rare talent for combining historical erudition, ethical seriousness, and theological acumen, and doing so with a compelling and critical faithfulness to the gospel. Dr. Rivera Pagan's lecture this evening is entitled Karl Barth and the Origins of Liberation Theology, and I hope that you'll join me in welcoming Dr. Rivera Pagan as the opening speaker for our conference. I am I'm very grateful for this invitation. My doctoral dissertation was on Irenaeus, second century, under Gerald Pelican at Yale. But first, there was a master dissertation, and it was on the anthropology of Calvart under the direction of Hans Frey. I, I am very grateful for the invitation. And I am Professor Bruce McCormack, my friend. I, I was very moved by your words. It brought tears to my heart and to my eyes. Thank you. Karl Barth and the Origins of Liberation Theology. I will begin by quoting from Bonhoeffer's Letters and Papers from Prison. We have for once learned to see the great events of world history from below, from the perspective of the outcast, the suspects, the maltreated, the powerless, the oppressed, the reviled, in short, from the perspective of those who suffer. In this brief essay, I will consider four issues. First, the historical intellectual context of liberation theology. Second, the early Latin American liberation theology. Third, the initial North American black theology. And finally, Karl Barth as precursor of liberation theology. Liberation theology was the unforeseen and van terrible in the academic and ecclesial realms of theological production during the last decades of the 20th century. It brought to the conversation not only a new theme, liberation, but also a new perspective on doing theology and a novel way of referring to God's being and action in history. Its project to reconfigure the interplay between religious studies, history, and politics became a meaningful topic of analysis and dialogue in the general theological discourse. Many scholars perceive in its emergence a drastic epistemological rupture, a radical change in paradigm, a significant shift in both the ecclesial and social role of theology. Its origins are diverse and not exclusive to theological and ecclesiastical horizon. One important source, neglected by some clerical accounts, was the complex constellation of liberation struggles during the 60s and early 70s. It was a time of social turmoil when movement protests, mainly directed against American when, when many things seemed, uh, sorry, it was a time of social turmoil 
when many things seems out of joint, strong anti-war movement protest, mainly directed against American military intervention in Vietnam and the global nuclear threat. A spread of decolonization movements all over the third world, defending the struggle against masculine patriarchy, a robust challenge to racial bigotry, the Stonewall Rebellion in June 69 against homophobia and gay discriminations, student protests in Paris, Prague, Mexico, New York in opposition to repressive states of all stripes, guerrilla insurgencies and social unrest in many Latin American nations. Many of these agents of social protest adopted the title of liberation movement as their public card of presentation. Fronts of national liberation flourish all over the third world. Another significant factor was the development of a non-dogmatic Marxism that read Marx's text as an ethical critique on human oppression and as a projection of a utopian non-oppressive future, sort of a kingdom of freedom. This heterodox way of reading Marx by authors like the German philosopher Ernst Bloch made possible something up to then considered unthinkable a constructive and affirmative dialogue between theology and Marxism at the margins of church and party hierarchies, rigid orthodoxies. Influential in this intellectual milieu was Bloch's 1968 Atheismus in Christentum, whose hermeneutical performance diagnosis inside the biblical text struggle between the voices of the oppressors and those of the oppressed, and provocatively asserts that whoever wants to be a good Marxist should constantly read the Bible. And vice versa, whoever wants to be a good Christian should have Marx as bedside reading. Other iconoclast authors like Herbert Marcuse and Franz Fanon were passionately read from Buenos Aires to Berlin, from Berkeley to Nairobi, with intentionalities not limited to academia. Exiled from Brazil, Paulo Freire, delivered scathing critiques of traditional educational system and promoted a pedagogy for the liberation of the oppressed. Martin Luther King Jr. and Ernesto Che Guevara became emblematic icons and martyrs of those turbulent times. Paul Eluard's poem, Liberté, recited and sung in many languages, became its poetic hymn. By the power of the word, I regain my life. I was born to know you and name you liberty. Within the churches, important processes were taking place. Pope John XIII summoned, to the surprise of many, the Second Vatican Council. Progressive Roman Catholic theologians considered Vatican II an important turning point in the modern history of their church. According to their interpretation, the Council had three main objectives. First, to change the attitude of the Roman Catholic Church toward the modern post-enlightenment intellectual world, from sensual condemnation to openness and dialogue. The Italian word, aggiornamento, became the watchword of the attempts to update the church. Second, to heal the fragmentation of Christianity by inserting the Roman Catholic Church in the emerging ecumenical movement. Delegates from Protestant and Orthodox churches were invited to observed the proceedings of the council, a, a series of bilateral, multilateral dialogues began between Rome and other Christian denominations. Third, to face with honesty and compassion, 
the plight of a world suffering violence, oppression, and injustice. The Council took place in a global context, surrounded by national liberation struggles, civil wars, and the painful gap between the haves and the have-nots of the globe. The quest for peace and justice was conceived as an essential dimension of the being, of, of the being in the world of the church. John 13th, 1963 encyclical, Pachem Interris, published in the context of that conciliar process, seemed to be another sign of renewal, from attitude of anathema to a spirit of dialogue and solidarity. This ecclesiastical openness was accompanied by several theological projects that seemed to shape an alternative way to look at social conflicts. An attempt was made to configure a political theology as a way to design a creative dialogue with Marxism and post-enlightenment secular ideologies. I think American liberation theology. Vatican II was followed by regional synods of bishops. The most famous of them was the general meeting of Latin American Roman Catholic bishops that took place August 26 to September 6, 1968 at Medellin, Colombia. To the amazing of many observers, the Roman Catholic Church which the radical intelligentsia in the continent had considered an ideological bulwark of prevailing social inequities, was promulgating as a decisive pastoral challenge solidarity with the poor and destitute. The Vatican II opened the theological dialogue with modern rationality. Medellin was perceived as a prophetic convocation against poverty, inequality, and oppression. The Vatican II was mainly concerned with the gap between the church and secular modernity, Medellin, according to this reading, was more concerned with the scandal of social injustice in a Christian continent. In a crucial section of their final resolution, the Latin American bishops linked the Christian faith with the historical and social liberation. And I quote from the official document of the Medellin Conference of Bishops. The Latin American bishops cannot remain indifferent in the face of the tremendous social injustices existing in Latin America, which keeps the majority of our peoples in dismal poverty that in many cases becomes inhuman wretchedness. A deafening cry powers from the throats of millions of men and women asking their pastor for a liberation that reaches them from nowhere. Christ our Savior not only loved the poor, but also centered his mission in announcing liberation to the poor. Certainly, the Medellin Conference was a meeting of bishops, not of theologians. But several, several Roman Catholic theologians perceived the final documents as the general tone prevailing in the conference, and the general tone prevailing in the conference, as allowing the possibility of rethinking the theological enterprise from the perspective of the liberation of the poor and downtrodden. Prior to the Medellin meeting, on July 1968, Gustavo Gutierrez had given a lecture at Chimbote, Peru, significantly, significantly titled Toward a Theology of Liberation, which coupled closely a spiritual salvation and human liberation. It proved to be a pioneer text for Latin American liberation theology. It also inaugurated Gutierrez five decades of fertile theological production. By the way, he was already 82 years old when in July 72, 2010, he gave a lecture here in this, in this place, in Stuart 6, 
at Princeton Theological Seminary invited by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In 1971 was published the first edition of his most famous book, Theology of Liberation, a landmark in Latin American theological writing. His triadic understanding of human liberation, liberation from social and economic oppression, history as a process of self-determined humanization, and redemption from sinfulness became classic. That same year was also published Hugo Asman's book, Oppression, Liberation, Desafío a los Cristianos. Asman placed the emerging liberation theology in the wider context of the third world, and I quote from Asman, the contextual starting point from a theology of liberation is the historical situation of domin domination experienced by the peoples of the third world. Gutierrez and Asman were followed by a spate of other theologians, Leonardo, Bob, Jose, Porfirio, Miranda, Juan Luis II, John Sobrino, Pablo, Richard, Jorge, Pixley, among many others, whose writings were concerned as expression of a new intellectual understanding of the faith, liberation theology. Among the many texts that rocked the, the placid realm of theological production during those early years, of Latin American liberation theology, where Jose Porfirio Miranda's Marx y la Biblia, an important contribution to a liberationist hermeneutics, sort of a theological companion to Bloch's atheismus in Christentum, and also Juan Luis, II, Juan Luis II's Liberation de la, Liberación de la Teología, Liberación de la Teología, with its frontal challenge to traditional scholastic ways of doing theology. What could be considered to be the main tenets? What could be considered to be the main tenets of this theological movement? First, the retrieval of the subversive memories inscribed in the sacred scripture, hidden below layers of culty regulation, doctrinal or orthodoxy, but never totally effaced. A specific hermeneutical and exegetical concentration in the Exodus story as a paradigm of the liberating character of God's action, in the prophetic denunciations of injustice and oppression, and in the confrontation of the historical Jesus against the Judean religious authorities and Roman political powers and his solidarity with the nobodies of Judea and Galilee. Second, a historical understanding of Jesus' proclamation of God's kingdom. The kingdom is conceived as referring not to some otherworldly post-mortem realm, but to the unceasing hope of a social configuration characterized by justice, solidarity, and freedom. Leonardo Boff and John Sobrino perceived Jesus as the liberator, going back to the semantic roots of the term redemption, the deliverance of a captive or a slave. It is a Christology attuned to the plight of the indigents, and to use Franz Fanon's term, the wretches of the earth. Third, the divine preferential, preferential option for the poor, the excluded and the destitute of this world. The church has to become the church of the poor, sharing their sorrows, hopes, and struggles. Initially, the ascent was mainly socioeconomic, but it was gradually widened to include other categories of social exclusion, indigenous communities, racial and ethnic minorities, women, sexual orientation. Four, theology cannot be reduced to an intellectual understanding of the faith, but must also be a practical commitment for historical transformation. The category of praxis, 
Partly borrowed from Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of Liberation. Partly an adaptation of Marx's 11th thesis on Feuerbach. You remember the thesis. Four philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. Acquire normative status. History, therefore, as the realm of the perennial struggle against oppressions and exclusions, emerged as the locus for Christian praxis. Five, God is reconceived not as an immutable and impassy entelechy, but according to the biblical narratives, as a compassionate, eternal spirit that hears and pays close attention to the cry of the oppressed and whose action in human history has the redemption of the downtrodden and excluded as its ultimate telos. Irain might be located liberation theology means theoretical epistemological rupture and reconfiguration, a novel way of thinking about God's being and action in history. Instead of contriving arcane scholastic definition of divine essence, God is referred to as liberator. Latin American liberation theology strove to force, to force a new kind of being the church in the world. The base ecclesial community, las comunidades eclesiásticas de base, assists for reconfirming the church as the people of God. These congregations were considered expressions of the church solidarity with the poor and oppressor in their aspiration for liberation and human promotion. An, Im an impressive wealth of liturgical, musical, exegetical, homiletical, ethical, and literary resources was produced to promote social and human emancipation. Historical transformation was their key theme. Leonardo Boff even advocated a new genesis of the church. However, many in the hierarchical church, including some members of the Roman Curia Apex, viewed with marked distrust their potential disruption of episcopal authority and moved to restrict their autonomy. Rome was also concerned about the consequences for dogmatic orthodoxies of this new theological perspective. A long protracted confrontation supervened that still goes on here and there. Political power matters. Since their colonial inception, an official linkage between the state and the Roman Catholic Church characterized Latin American nations. The royal patronage exercised by the Iberian crown entailed the acknowledgement by the church of the sovereignty and authority of the metropolitan state, but also the state's recognition of the Roman Catholic Church primacy in religious affairs. It was sometimes the source of acute conflicts. Whenever the ethical conscience of bishop, priests, missionaries, and theologians clashed with the severe exploitation of the native communities. Bartolomé de las Casas, to whose historical significance Gustavo Gutierrez devoted a magnificent book, is the most famous, famous protagonist of such conflicts. Yet it was a convenient arrangement for both partners, for it conferred a sacred aura to the metropolitan sovereignty and conversely provided the church with a state protection. The governments of the new states that emerged after the 19th century war's independence promptly recognized the advantages of the royal patronage and tried to preserve it. This heritage forged a particular brand of Latin American Christendom closely linking the state and the Roman Catholic Church, 
a condition juridically inscribed in several national constitutions and Vatican concordats. This official co connection between church and state was venerable, but also vulnerable. The prophetic and evangelical subversive memories inscribed in the Christian scripture and tradition surfaced powerfully during the somber and violent times of Latin American military dictatorship between 1964 to 1989 to shake the alliance between the political powers and church authorities. The most famous of the ensuing conflicts took place in the midst of the violent civil war in El Salvador, a nation where nuns, priests, lay workers, and even the primate of the Roman Catholic Church, Archbishop Oscar Nulfo Romero, were assassinated by the military or the right wing's allies. Archbishop Romero tried to steer his church to become a defender of the poor and the persecuted. He recognized that the forbearance of the ruling clans was as limited as their economic interests were great. Two weeks before his assassination, in an interview to a Mexican newspaper, he foreshadowed his death and gave a theological and pastoral interpretation of his personal destiny. And I quote from that statement of Romero. I have frequently been threatened with death. death. If God accepts the sacrifice of my life, then may my blood be the seat of liberty and a sign of the hope that will soon be a reality. May my death, if it is accepted by God, be for the liberation of my people as, and as a witness of hope in what is to come. His assassination convinced many church authorities that liberation theology was risking seriously the social well-being of the Roman Catholic Church and that a convenient long-standing church-state covenant was endangered by the radical political intervention of some members of the clergy, and they moved decisively to suppress it. Ecclesiastical and social political considerations were not the only issues of concern for Vatican authorities. Doctrinal orthodoxy matters for the Roman Catholic Church. Under the prefecture of Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, the sacred congregation for the doctrine of the faith strongly criticized what it considered liberation theology's ominous doctrinal deviation. On August 6, 1988, it issued with the approval of Pope John Paul II, the admonishing instruction on certain aspects of the theology of liberation, followed by an admonition to Leonardo Boff and another general critique, instruction on Christian freedom and liberation, March 22, 1986. Liberation theology was indicted of borrowing improperly from Marxist thought, emphasizing historical and social liberation to the detriment of a spiritual salvation promoting class struggle instead of reconciliation, disdaining the church social, social doctrine and politicizing biblical hermeneutics, Christology and the church. The goal of the authoritative, authoritative reprimands was, and I quote, to draw attention to the deviation and risk of deviation, damaging to the faith and to Christian living that are brought by certain forms of liberation theology. The theologies, of liberation tend to misunderstand or to eliminate the transcendence and gratuity of liberation in Jesus Christ through God and through man. One needs to be on guard against the politicization of existence, which, misunderstanding the entire meaning of the kingdom of God and the transcendence of the person, 
begins to sacralize politics and betray the religion of the people in favor of the projects of revolution. Traditionally, indictments like this were able to uh, silence the accused theologians, but not this time. Prompt reactions by Gustavo Gutierrez, Leonardo Boffan, or Luis II were evident signs that Rome had lost the capability to repress the new theological movement. A letter said, sent by John Paul II to the Brazilian bishops in April 9, 1986 has been understood by several scholars as a truce of the growing dispute to avoid a sharp rupture in the Latin American church, but also as a validation of the concept of social and political liberation as an important dimension of the church pastoral mission. Several Roman Catholic theologians have, have sustained an effort to convince Rome that liberation theology is a valid and legitimate thinking of the apostolic tradition that does not constitute a threat to the church orthodoxy or integrity. However, some influential sector of the Roman Curia still look askance at liberation theology as evidenced by the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, a scathing critique of John's Sobrino Christology in 2006. Many Roman Catholic narratives disregard other sources that contributed to the birth of liberation theology. In the 60s, several Latin American Protestant churches were undergoing similar processes of rethinking the relationship between salvation History as the sphere of divine human encounter and liberation. In fact, the first <laughs> extensive monograph that focused on historical and social liberation as a central hermeneutical key to conceptualize the Christian faith was the doctoral dissertation of Ruben Alves, a Brazilian Presbyterian. In May of 1968, Alves defended successfully, but in a very difficult situation, successfully his dissertation at Princeton Theological Seminary. The title of that dissertation was Towards a Theology of Human Liberation. Alves wrote it under the direction of Richard Scholl, who was a professor here in Princeton, who for a good number of years had been working in theological education in Latin America, first in Colombia, later in Brazil, and who was crucial for the development of a liberationist theology in Protestant Latin American circles. Scholl also had been instrumental in the 1970 English publication of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, a key text in the development of Latin American liberation theology. Scholl was a professor here at Princeton for many years. Alves' dissertation is a powerful text, written in a splendid literary style. It was published as a book in 1969, two years before Gutierrez, but with a significant change in the title. Remember, it was a theology of human liberation as a dissertation. It was the, the publisher published it, published it as a theology of human hope. Apparently, the publisher believed that the concept of hope, with its obvious connotation to the writings of Jürgen Molman, it was Jürgen Molman who gave me in Tübingen a copy of Alves' book, by the way, Jürgen Molman would be more commercially attractive or relevant than liberation. Yet despite the change of, the, of title, Alves conceptualizes the temporal dialectic proper, proper to theological language in terms of a historical politics of liberation. And I quote from that book. The acts of remembering and hoping 
that determine the language of the community of faith, therefore, do not have any reality in themselves, but in the engagement in the ongoing politics of liberation with this situation and condition of theological intelligibility. Black liberation theology. But as it is wrong to locate the birth of liberation theology exclusively in Roman Catholic circles, it is also mistaken to situate it solely in Latin America. During the times of slavery and racial discrimination in the US, black churches were communities of solidarity and hope for the enslaved peoples of African ancestry. Then and there are the Exodus story, the prophetic denunciations, and the story of the crucified but resurrected Jesus were sung, preached, and hoped, sustaining the narratives of the suffering black communities. Their bodies might be in bondage to their white masters, but their hearts and minds were nourished and comforted by the biblical stories of retribution and redemption. In continuity with that history, the African-American churches became important protagonists of the civil rights movement for the elimination of rational discrimination. All over the North American South, black preachers became leaders in spreading the challenging message and gospel music, and go the spreading the challenging music message, and gospel music acquired a more historically relevant twist. The speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. are saturated with the cadences, intonations, and biblical images typical of African-American preachings. The lyrics of We Shall Overcome, the emblematic hymn of the civil rights movement, is a variant of a prior hymn, I'll Overcome Someday, written in 1901 by Charles Albert Tinley one of the founding fathers of African-American gospel music. And its melody is based upon an even earlier defined black song, the 19th century spiritual No More Auction Block for Me. A subversive hymn revived in the 20th century first by the powerful voice of Paul Robeson, who used to live here in Princeton, Paul Robeson, and later on by Bob Dylan. No more auction block for me, no more, no more. No more auction block for me. Many thousands have gone. No more drivers slash for me, no more, no more. No more drivers slash for me, many thousands gone. No more whip lash for me, no more, no more. No more pint of salt for me, you know, this salt for, for, the, for, the, for the ache or the, of the wind, wound, wounds. Many thousands gone. In this social and ecclesiastical environment, some African-American theologians began to rethink their intellectual role in the epic struggle of their people. Black liberation theology, rooted in the historical experience of slavery and racism, became an important partner in the theological table of dialogue, bringing to the conversation the issues of racial and ethnic discrimination. The foremost of the African-American liberation theologian so certainly not the only one was the recently deceased James Cone. In his 1969 book, Black Theology and Black Power, he still tentatively wrote, and I quote, the work of Christ is essentially a liberating work directed toward and by the oppressed. It was the first foretaste of his 1970 groundbreaking, 1970, therefore a year before Gustavo Gutierrez's book, groundbreaking text, a black theology of liberation, Cone was not one 
to mean's word in its radical transformation of theology, and I quote, it is my contention that Christianity is essentially a, th a religion of liberation. The function of theology is that of analyzing the meaning of that liberation for the oppressed so that they can know that their struggle for political, social, and economic justice is consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any theology that is indifferent to the theme of liberation is not Christian. He didn't mean any word. Christian theology is a theology of liberation. It is a rational study of the being of God in the world in light of the existential situation of an oppressed community, relating the forces of liberation to the essence of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. In view of the biblical emphasis on liberation, it seems not only appropriate but necessary to define the Christian community as the community of the oppressed, which joins Jesus Christ in his fight for the liberation of humankind. Black theology of liberation became a, not, not only important, but the, the, one of the first partners of theological discourses in the academic, ecclesiastical, and public social realms in all places where the African peoples have been subjected to dominion or control. He has been able to dwell very crea creatively with the cultural and artistic traditions of their communities. In times like ours, when racism undergoes violent, violent political reawakening, and African-American communities have to proclaim that black lives matter, it is essential to remember and retrieve James Cone, superb theological linking between the cross and the lynching tree. Prior to the pub publishing that book, he gave lectures in different places, including our chapel here in Princeton. Karl Barth, precursor of liberation theology. I should be put that as a question mark better. Precursor of liberation theology. It can reasonably be suggested that Karl Barth, in some of his writings, was a key precursor of liberation theology. This can be affirmed if we take into consideration the following cardinal points in Barth's text. First, the correlation between theology and politics. In a conversation that took place on May 4, 1962, right in this place where we gather today, PTS, Princeton Theological Seminary, Bart firmly asserted that theology requires and demands political action. And I quote Bart, if Christians serve the king of kings, then politics is something straightforward. Thus, theology is itself political action. There is no theological word, no theological reference, no, no theological reflection or elucidation. There is no sermon that does not imply political action. Previously, in a conference of the World Student, World Student Christian Federation in Strasbourg, 1960, but was even more emphatic and radical on this issue. And I quote, there is no possibility for a Christian to retreat from the political aspects of life. We must take seriously the question of politics, peace, and justice in the world. A Christian is asked to take full responsibility for what happens in the world. Second, God's preferential option for the poor. Bart published in December 1949 the Swiss paper Atlantis, a brief but a strong and categorical essay affirming God's preferential option for the poor, one of the main tenets of liberation theology. And I quote, I quote Bart, God in a wise takes up a neutral position between the poor man and the rich man. The rich may take care of their own future. He's on the side of the poor. 
the gospel was proclaimed to the poor. While on the contrary, the rich are often shown in suspiciously close proximity to the mighty evil doer whose pride goes before the fall. Thus the Bible is on the side of the poor, the impecunious and the destitute. He whom the Bible calls God is on the side of the poor. Poverty is not a natural condition of life in this world, but is part of the evil which dominates that life. It is perhaps the most striking resort of human sin. Christ was born in poverty and he died in extreme poverty, nailed naked to the cross. He's then the companion, not of the rich men of the world, but of the poor of this world. Not wealth, but poverty is the mark of heaven, the mirror of eternal salvation. This is the theological principle that Bart reiterates in his church dogmatics. He, Jesus, ignored those who are high and mighty and wealthy in the world in favor of the weak and meek and lowly. In fellowship and conformity with this God who is poor in the world, the royal man Jesus is also poor and fulfills this transvaluation of all values. The hungry and thirsty and strangers and naked and sick and captives are the brothers of Jesus in whom he himself is either recognized or not recognized. Those whom he calls to himself are always the weary and heavy laden. This way of the man Jesus is a reflection of the way God himself went from those who have all things to those who have nothing. Third, God's righteousness and the rights of the dispossessed, justification and justice. In the church, in the church dogmatics, Barth correlates God's righteousness and the rights of the poor and dispossessed and associates the doctrine of justification with the travails toward achieving justice for the indigent and displaced, and I quote from, from, the, from the church dogmatics. The human righteousness required by God and establishing obedience, the righteousness which according to Amos 5.24 should power down as a mighty stream, has necessarily the character of a vindication of right in favor of the threatened innocent, the oppressed poor, widows, orphans, and aliens. I want to emphasize this time, aliens. <laughs> God always takes his stand unconditionally and passionately on this side alone against the lofty and on behalf of the low, lowly, against those who already enjoy right and privilege and on behalf of those who are denied and deprived of it. God's righteousness, the faithfulness in which he is true to himself, is disclosed as help and salvation, as a saving divine intervention for man directed only to the poor, the wretched and the helpless as such, while with the rich and the fool and the secure as such, according to his nation, he can have nothing to do. The man who lives by the faith that this is true stands under a political responsibility. He can only will and affirm a state which is based on justice. By any other political attitude, he rejects divine justification. By any other political attitude, he rejects the divine justification. Four, the church preferential option for the poor. But also affirm the church political obligation to cite, to cite 
unequivocally with the plight and social vindication of the poor and dispossessed. And I quote, the church is witness to the fact that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And this implies that casting all false impartiality aside, the church must concentrate first on the lower and lowest levels of human society. The poor, the socially and economically weak and threatened will always be the object of its primary and particular concern. The poor and the workers under capitalism sustains Bart, and I quote again Bart, the only choice they often have is between salvation and doing work which either does not benefit the cause of mankind, is detrimental to it, or is completely alien. Being performant in the service of a sinister and heartless and perpetually ambiguous idol. Therefore, the church duty is to denounce that system of exploitation and side unequivocally with those who have been subjugated, yet hope and aspire to a future of freedom and justice. And again, I quote Bart, the church must stand for social justice in the political sphere and in choosing between the various socialistic possibilities, it will always choose the movement from which it can expect the greatest measure of social justice. Five, in some of his writings, some of his writings, but express inclination towards socialism. When he was a pastor of a congregation in Saffenville, Switzerland, Bart gave a speech to an assembly of workers in which he affirmed socialism as the hope for the dispossessed, displaced, and marginalized. And I quote, Jesus felt himself sent to the poor and the lowly. Jesus is more socialist than the socialist. Jesus, is really, Jesus really wanted to say that a rich person, a possessor of worldly goods, does not enter into the kingdom of God. Solidarity is the law and the gospel of socialism. For Jesus, there was only a social God a God of solidarity. Therefore, there was only a social religion, a religion of solidarity. Just after the catastrophic Second World War, Bart was still willing to raise the question whether Europe, Europe might be able to leave behind capitalism and begin designing some kind of socialism, this kind of utopia. The consciences, consciences of us Europeans should be as clear as far as this problem is concerned. But is there any hope here? Evidently, only if Europe still has the power to take up the challenge by instituting a form of socialism of its own. In his church dogmatics, Bart eulogizes Karl Marx's criticism of the iniquities of capitalism and his promotion of resistance by the oppressed workers. And I quote from the dogmatics. Above all, perhaps, as the main force behind the workers' movement and against the background of the great and radical analysis, questioning and criticizing, question the, the, the great and radical analysis, questioning and criticizing of the system, particularly associated with the name of Karl Marx, Karl Marx, Karl Marx, 
<laughs> Karl Marx, there has been the awakening of the working class to consciousness of its power when properly organized and its, and its internationally directed self-defense and self-assistance, both politically and in the form of trade unions and cooperative societies. Though, to avoid confusion, Bart distances himself from Marxism as a form of dogmatic creed asserting, also in the church dogmatics that, and I quote, as man believes in God, even in the form of his belief in providence, he can believe in God, only and only God. This object cannot be confused with any other, nor can we believe, as Karl Marx did, in a purpose of history, where it put in the clash and counterclash of the economic classes, culminating the victory and liberation of the economically oppressed. Six, Barth strongly criticized the church lack, the church's historical lack of solidarity with the poor. The church has accepted social misery as an accomplished fact in order to talk about the spirit to cultivate the inner life and to prepare for the kingdom in heaven. That is the great momentous apostasy of the Christian church, an apostasy from Christ. The church should follow and obey God's command to struggle for social justice. In his dogmatics, he affirmed that divinely constituted duty. The command of God is self-evidently and in all circumstances, a call for counter movements on behalf of humanity and therefore a call for the championing of the weak against every kind of encroachment on the part of the strong. Of the, on the part of the strong. But also they are to affirm gender equity and the rights of women. In one key text, he wrote the following regarding female rights, and I quote again Bart. As the fellowship of those who live in one faith under one Lord on the basis of a baptism in one spirit, the church must and will stand for the quality of the freedom and responsibility of the adult citizens. It is all more important for the church to urge that the restriction of the political freedom and responsibility, not only of certain classes and races, but supremely, of that of women is an arbitrary convention which does not deserve to be preserved any longer. However, yes, is a strong censor of homosexuality in the church dogmatics has also sustained the deep and wide, widespread hostility in many ecclesial and theological circles against the LGBTQ community on homosexuality, but critically asserts. This is, and I quote, this is the physical, psychological, and social sickness, the phenomenon of perversion, decadence, and decay. The decisive word of Christian ethics must consist in a warning against entering upon the whole way of life which can only end in the tragedy of concrete homosexuality. The real perversion takes place. The original decadence and disintegration begins where man will not see his partner of the opposite sex. This is the place for protest, warning and conversion. The command of God shows him irrefutably. Homosexuality can have no place in his life. 
What that strong condemnation of homosexuality pertains for the future of theology and the church is hard to predict. I just hope that in the contingencies of posterity will simply be forsaken, forgiven, and forgotten. It also should not detract from recognizing Bart's contribution to the emergence of a radical theology of liberation. I thus end this lecture with the following words of the John Calvart, and I quote the John Calvart. He, Jesus, came from the lowest social class of the Jewish people at that time. Jesus felt himself sent to the poor and the lowly. What he brought was good news to the poor. Thank you.